You can turn your Bibles to Joshua. Excuse me, that was last week. Let me get into this week. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 78. <laughs> Psalm 78. I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit, uh, I think, in your books. So we're on, I think, lesson four point something or other. Uh, but anyways, Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Uh, let me start out by asking you this, just a quick question. What's your favorite class in school, if you had to choose one? Lunch. Lunch. Lunch and recess are not answers. Nap time. Yes, Aaron. Economics. Economics? Okay. Computer. Chemistry. History. What about dead people? Computers. Okay, computers, math, science, geometry. Economics is one I was not expecting. I think, like Tim, though, uh, hey, listen up, really quick. I think, like Tim, though, I think the most important class in school is actually history. My wife would disagree with me because she thinks it's boring. But just like Tim said, most of us think that history is about learning about dead people. You're just learning about facts about dead people. And for the most part, I would say that's mostly true. But I think also, I think uh, history can really teach us something, like I said last week, when we remember that these dead people had long lives, long lives of really good days, really bad days, really interesting days, really boring days, who these people who had hopes and dreams and struggles and successes, each of these people had real lives. And when you think about it that way, it's not just you're learning about some historical figure that is not really real. You have to think about it as real people, just like you are, as you're living and breathing right now. They were living and breathing hundreds of years ago. And I think when you look at it that way, history sort of comes alive because you're looking at real people who walked this earth. Just like we talked about last week in Joshua, just like we're going to learn about tonight. I think history comes alive when we see that, and I think also biblical history is even more animated, just like I said last week, that it becomes even more animated when you're reading about that random guy who has the random name that you can hardly even pronounce. He was a real person who had a family, and he had, had, he had friends, he had a job, perhaps, in his little city or whatever. When you think about it that way, history has a lot of life to it. And I think Psalm 78 is a psalm of history. So if you're not liking history, well, buckle up because you're about to get a lot of it. But Psalm 78 is really a history chapter. The psalmist is a guy named Asaph. And really what he does through these 72 verses, and we won't read all 72, but through these 72 verses of Psalm 78, he's giving a gospel history lesson. He's giving uh, the readers here, the, the readers of this psalm, a history lesson of stuff that they had forgotten. And I think through history, we're made to see, through especially this history lesson, we're made to see um, Israel's failures. You know, if you're familiar with Sunday school lessons at all, you know that Israel failed time and time and time again. Their, their, their whole history is a recurring cycle of failure and faith and success and defeat and more failure. <laughs> and that's really what Asaph points out here. But even more through that, not just the failures, what he's wanting to point you to is that, yes, we are perpetually failing. But through it all, God is persistent in his faith and his grace for us. 
And that's what he wants to point out. So if you just, we're just going to read a few verses. I'm not going to read all 72 or be here for a long time. But in verses 1 through 3, look at it really quick. Psalm 78, 1. He says, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He's basically saying, hey, listen up. It's just like he's shouting to the people that are not paying attention or they're sleeping in the church or whatever. He's saying, listen up, because what I'm about to say is really important for you. Yes, it's history, but you have to listen because this is really important. Don't miss this. Give ear, O my people. I will open my mouth in a parable, he says, in a story. I will utter dark sayings of old, he says, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. So he's basically saying, these are stories that you have known for a long time. These are familiar. They're going to be familiar with you. But listen up. Don't get bored. That's what he's saying. Don't get bored. You are familiar with these. Your fathers have told you them. But listen with fresh ears. Incline your ears to me. Because what I have is important. And what it, why is it important? Well, look at verse 4. He says, we will not hide them from our children. These, he, by them, he means these stories. Showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he hath done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. So here he's relaying the importance of what he's going to say. Hey, you need to listen up because you don't want to miss what I have to say. Why? Because you want to know about this history because you don't want to repeat it. See, I think history can serve, especially the history that he's about to relay, it can serve really two purposes. I think first we can see that this history serves as sort of like a cautionary. It's, it's, he's cautioning uh, these readers, these people against repeating these past failures. That's why he says in verses 7 and 8 that they, they might not be as their father, stubborn and rebellious. But also he wants to not, he doesn't want to just caution them. He doesn't want to just tear them down and leave them in the dumps. He wants to build up not only, he doesn't want to just caution them. He wants to build up their confidence because that's why he says in verses 4 through 7, he's really saying, we have to remember these things. We have to remember all these uh, praises of the Lord, he says. These wonderful works that he hath done at the end of verse 4. We have to remember these things. This will build up your confidence in God that, yes, despite you fail, God is faithful. As that guy, um, I don't know if you're probably familiar with this phrase by George Santiana, a Spanish, a Spanish American novelist and poet. He says, "Those who, um, excuse me, those who can't remember the past are condemned to repeat it," which is sort of like a, a common phrase we're familiar with now. But I think that's literally what he's saying: that if you don't remember these things, you're going to be doomed to repeat them. So listen up, because you don't want to repeat these things. You don't want to be cast off, as he goes on to say. And these stories, I think, from the past, these rich sayings of old that he's about to tell them are stories that may seem dead because we don't like history, but he says they come alive and they can change your trajectory. They can change your life. 
It's, it, that's what is amazing about history, that the past can speak to you as you are in your present life and actually inform how you're going to live in your future life. That's what history does for us. That's why it's important. That's why Bible history is important. Because it, it can speak to you now and inform how you can live in the future. And I would say also that uh, our obedience and what he's trying to do here, Asaph isn't just trying to bring up bad memories. He doesn't want to just bring up bad stuff to just revel in the bad stuff. What he's wanting to do is he's wanting to inspire obedience from these people. And what's the best way to inspire obedience? But by reliving and rejoicing in the fact that God is for us, that God has, um, God has been faithful to us. That's why over and over again through this psalm, he, he recounts the praiseworthy acts, these, as it says in verse 4 again, the wonderful works of God. He's trying to inspire obedience. He's trying to change these people's trajectory inspire more faith. And he does this, I think, through three, three sort of main categories. I'm going to try and go through them quickly. I'm not going to pinpoint all the verses we could see these in, but first of all, I think he recounts it by looking at God's provision uh, very quickly in verses 14 through 16. Look at those. He, he says, In the daytime he also led them with a cloud, and all the night with a, with a light of fire. And he clave the rocks in the wilderness, and he gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down the rivers. So if you're familiar with Old Testament history, he's obviously talking about the Exodus and when the, the Israelites are going through the wilderness and how the Spirit of God led them out, a cloud by day and a fire by night. God was so uh, careful in providing for his people that he made sure that they had a guide through every single situation. I think very quickly what we can see here is that no matter what situation we are in, we are never lacking in the necessities of life. God, I think, makes sure of that. That regardless of what you think are necessities, God's arm is not shortened. God meets us with not just meeting our need. Every single turn, God meets us with abundance. He goes far and beyond what we think we need. That's why he doesn't just give us the enough righteousness to satisfy the law. He gives us his righteousness, <laughs> perfect righteousness. He goes way beyond what we think we need and gives us always more than we need. And that's why if you, if you read down further in verses 23 through 25, I love the phrase at the end of 25 where it says they had food to the full. So Israel was, you know, if you remember, you know, they were complaining, they were hungry, they were starving. And then what does God do? He starts raining down manna. And it's not just manna enough that they can eat and get by. They were collecting baskets full. They were collecting all sorts of stuff that they had that they could ever want. And they were eating to the full. It reminds me of in the Gospels, you know, when he feeds the 5,000. He doesn't just give them enough to feed 5,000. They collected 12 baskets full of extra leftovers. <laughs> It points to the abundance of God, the abundant provision of God that, that never runs dry. And regardless of what we're going through, God is never, uh, never lacking in giving us what we need. And yet, I have to think about my own life because I think sometimes when uh, bad times are happening, when, when hard times come in my life, what's the first thing I forget? The necessities that God has provided for me. I, I, I was thinking about this, I was, I was studying, is that just very simply, <laughs> one of the things I complain about most right now is my iPhone. 
Just if you just think about that, like in third person, I'm complaining about the fact that my iPhone is slow. <laughs> if you just think about how really first world problem that is, <laughs> that I'm sitting in a Starbucks trying to study and I'm complaining because my iPhone is slow. Like how how much am I forgetting the fact that God has provided everything I need in this moment, regardless of whether I can't text as fast as I want or not. <laughs> God meets our needs every single step of the way. Every single step of the way for Israel, he was always meeting their needs. And what's unfortunate is they were always forgetting that. But not only God's provision, very quickly, we also see that Asaph is wanting to remind them of God's protection. Look at verses 12 and 13, quickly. He says, Marvelous things did God in the sight of their fathers. In the land of Egypt, in the field of zone, that is of Egypt, and he divided the sea. And caused them to pass through and he made the waters to stand as in heap. So God, you see, as we know, God fights for his own people. God fights for his children. And that regardless of how turbulent our ways may be, how regardless how many trials we are seemingly going through, regardless of how stressful our situation may be right now, God's ways always will lead to triumph. And I can say that confidently because maybe you won't see it now. Maybe you won't see it next year or five years from now. But guess what? God has already gotten the ultimate triumph in Jesus Christ. That regardless of what you're going through right now, God, hey, I hate to break it to you. He may not take you out of it. Whether it's an enduring affliction on your life, whether it's a hard situation at home, whether whatever it might be, God may have you in it and he may not take you out of it while you're alive. But you know what your joy is? You know what your hope is? That the ultimate victory, the ultimate triumph, the perfect success has already been won in Jesus Christ for you. That regardless of all the defeats we face, we are already victors. We are already champions in Jesus Christ. And what's more, that God never ceases to intervene for us. Yeah, I, I like, I, I'm a, I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. I love the, the Lord of the Rings. I haven't read them in a while. I need to read the, reread them again. But I love the imagery, you know, when Gandalf comes to Hobbiton, and this is really probably, I forget now because it's been so long, but when Gandalf says to Frodo, when he comes to Hobbiton, he says that a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Actually, that's a very good theological statement. Did you know that? Because, yes, we may not see God intervening in our lives at this moment right now, but guess what? God is never, ever, ever late. He's never late to your situation. He's never late in any instance of your life. He always arrives exactly when he means to, right on time. We may think he's late on our timing, but he's never not on time in his timing. Actually, one pastor, he said it this way, and I love it. I will always remember that, that God never shows up late to an accident. He never drives an ambulance. God is never showing up late and seeing the wreckage and then trying to make sure and fix things from there. He's always arriving right on time, whether we think he is or not. Because God's timing is sovereign. God's timing is perfect. God's timing is not our timing. Yes, he, to Israel, they probably wished that they were taken out of slavery generations ago. But God, in the right timing, he brought them out in the Exodus exactly at the right time that he chose. 
And by this historical account, we can see God's protection, that he always intervenes for us every single step of our lives, but not only God's provision and God's protection, but chiefly, I want you to see God's patience because so we see God providing abundantly for God, always meeting their needs. God always protecting and intervening and encompassing them with safety. And some of the saddest words are in verse 32. Look at verse 32. Asaph says, but for all this, they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. That regardless of all that, regardless of all the abundance, regardless of all the things that he provided, regardless of all the situations he protected them, they sinned still. They forgot him. They neglected him. They did not consciously remember all the things that he had delivered them through in their history, in their past. This is why it's so important for us to not only read our Bibles, to remember our own history so that we won't forget all the ways that God has intervened for us, that God has provided for us, that God has interceded in the midst of our stresses. You know, man's heart is continuously a fickle heart. It wavers. It goes back and forth. It's forgetful. I can testify this. I have like probably a hundred to-dos on my phone because if I don't write stuff down, they are gone in an instant. (laughs) I have to write it down, and I have to actually put a thing to make sure it reminds me so I get a notification that says, hey, do this, because if you don't do it right now, you're going to forget to do it, and then it's going to be late. (laughs) I'm becoming quite (laughs) addicted and living by that to-do list because I'm just forgetful. Maybe I'm getting old. I don't know. Um, But regardless of how forgetful we are, Regardless of how fickle and, and wavering we are, God is always faithful. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible comes from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13. And it says that regardless of our faithlessness, God is faithful. And it says he cannot lie. God has promised to be faithful for you, and he can't lie. So that means he's always going to be faithful, whether you are faithful or not. Regardless, he is faithful for all the times that we test God, that we try God, that we, that we, that we test his patience, <laughs> that we try all the limits of his grace, as Israel did, as you can read about in these 72 verses, God always deals patiently with us. Every single step of the way, God deals patiently with people who test him, who test the limits of his patience. <laughs> So really, if we step back, we can see these things. We can read this history. What are we really to learn from this? The biggest takeaway I want you to learn is this, that man's history, your own history, is an ongoing testimony of God's boundless patience. I think of all the things that we can talk about. We can talk about grace. We can talk about the justification of sinners and all these sorts of things, all these great gospel words and doctrines and truths. One of the things that I am always thankful for is God's patience with me. A stubborn, boneheaded, idiotic guy like me doesn't deserve the patience of God that I'm shown. And yet, he's patient with me still. After all the times that I pray, God, I promise I'm not going to turn back to that sin. I'm not going to say that curse word again. I'm not going to get mad at this person under my breath again. All these things that I pray every single day, and then when I do it again, God is still patient with me. 
I can't get over the fact that God is patient with someone like me, a sinner like me. And that, as it says in Romans 5, 8, that he continues to meet me and he continues to remind me that he died for sinners like me. Man's history is an ongoing testimony to God's boundless patience. This was true for Israel. You can see that. You can know that. If, you're, if you read your Bibles for any length of time, you will be familiar with God's patience. And it's true for you too. That regardless of all these testings, God is patient with you. But also I think we can see that growing and, and, and being enriched in our lives, growing in grace as we might say, I think it comes by letting the past, as I said earlier, speak into our present and inform our future. Growth is never cultivated by pretending the past didn't exist. You know, I, I was thinking about this as I read this chapter. It's not directly related, but it just got me to thinking. You know, there's this big movement right now to tear down all these, you know, Confederate statues all across the Southeast, right? It's because there's this big push to, to pretend that racism doesn't exist or in their minds they're trying to get rid of racism by getting rid of these confederate statues. And let me tell you right now, I'm all for getting rid of people who are racist, not getting rid of them, but trying to educate them in the gospel, I might say. That it's something that should not exist in anyone who believes in the gospel but that doesn't happen by pretending that it, the past doesn't exist. Getting rid of racism doesn't happen by pretending that we can just whitewash some tombstones, that we can tear down some uh, statues, and that we can pretend that these flags don't exist. It happens by speaking into that part. By coming up to this statue and saying, hey, look at this. See this guy? Yes, he made a lot of mistakes, but guess what? The gospel speaks into the mess to the mess of our lives, to the stress of our lives. It doesn't happen when we pretend that our past is not the past. But just like Asaph here, he's saying, hey, remember this? Don't forget it or you're going to repeat it. And for all of our hopes and dreams of getting rid of this, uh, this racist ideology in ourselves, I don't, I have to say, I don't think we've gotten any better in it. Why? It's because people are trying to pretend the past didn't exist. They're trying to erase things that, that happened from their memories, and they're not going to the only thing that can make it really go away, i.e. the gospel of Jesus Christ for sinners. The gospel's best platform is the mess and the mayhem of our very lives. That's why in the midst of all the sin and depravity of the garden, guess what? God makes the most perfect promise. Genesis 3.15, right after they sin, he says, yes, but a seed will come and he will destroy the serpent. They call that the proto-evangelium, the first pronouncement of the gospel. And guess what? It happens right after man sinned. In the midst of all that darkness, all that sin, God speaks good news. And it's heard in the midst of a lot of very bad noise. You see, Asaph wasn't scared of history. He wasn't, he wasn't shying away from all these dark things. He wasn't saying, hey, let's pretend that didn't happen. We, forget, we can forget about all the times uh, that we forgot God. We forget about the golden calf. Let's just, let's just move on. He said, remember that? 
They forgot God. They forgot his wondrous works. Don't forget it. Listen up, because if you don't, you're going to repeat it. You're going to be just like them. He spoke openly and earnestly about man's failures, but also what you see through this chapter is God's faithfulness. And that's what God's story is. God's story is a story of redemption, of recovery. He's saying, remember this truth, the truth of my word. Bring it back into your hearts and souls and lives. The truth of my provision for you, of my protection for you, of my patience with you. Don't forget how many times I've delivered you after you've forgotten me. That speaks to me because every single day... I think it was Charles Spurgeon, I think maybe someone said this, that the most important daily habit we can possess by is preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. Why? Because we forget it every day. I can tell you that very much. That I don't consciously wake up and say, God died for my sins so I can live free in Christ to serve and love him and love others. I have to preach that to myself, not just daily, but hourly. (laughs) I don't know about you. And that's what history tells us, that God is patient with us, that God protects us, that God provides for us. And on and through it all, God is faithful to us. And if that doesn't, if that doesn't make you joyful, I don't know what will, because every single day you wake up to, as it says in Ecclesi- or, uh, Lamentations, to a great, great faithful God. That great is thy faithfulness. Thy mercies are new every single morning. That's something to wake up to. That's something to live for. Let's pray.